Before we go to the main show, just a word from our sponsor, LifeGuruAI.com. So LifeGuruAI.com brings you the wisdom of AI, providing personalized insights and practical advice tailored to your unique journey through life. Whether you're seeking direction in your career, aiming to enhance your personal wellness, or eager to embark on a path of self-improvement, our AI mentor is available at any moment to offer thoughtful, precise counsel. The platform is intuitively designed to simplify life's complexities, empowering you with clear, actionable guidance. With LifeGuru AI, you gain more than just answers. You unlock a deeper understanding of your own potential and direction. Start crafting a more fulfilling life today with LifeGuruAI.com and embrace the clarity that comes with every inquiry. Experience the transformation with LifeGuru AI, your AI-powered pathway to a limitless life. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 64. I'm Nick Dixon here with Shill of the Zionist controlled media, Toby Young. Coming up, Elon Musk goes thermonuclear on Media Matters. Argentina gets a libertarian leader and Farage gets flack in the jungle. Plus loads more and of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought we would start with Mr. Elon Musk, who has been in the news for several reasons. Well, one was the advertising boycott from Apple, Disney, Warner Brothers, Comcast, Lionsgate, Paramount, Sony, and IBM because of something he said in regards to anti-Semitism, which I'll get into. And then also, he then launched a massive lawsuit against Media Matters for misrepresenting their experience on the X platform. So I'll give you the first bit first. So there was this post, which uh, I've not been able to find out the guy's exact name because he's got an annoying Twitter handle, but he posted, okay, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest shit now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realization that those hordes of minorities they support flooding their country don't exactly like them too much. You want truth said to your face? There it is. And Musk replied, you have said the actual truth. So some might say it's a bit reckless because the original post was pretty wild, though Musk has since kind of clarified he was talking about the Anti-Defamation League, who he despises, of course, who aren't really, you can't even really say pro-Jewish at this point because they haven't, you know, they've been pro-leftist, often at the expense of Jewish people, it seems to me. So Musk has said, uh, he he said um, elsewhere, this does not extend to all Jewish communities, but is also not limited to just the ADL. I'm deeply offended by ADL's messaging and any other groups who push de facto anti-white racism or anti-Asian racism or racism of any kind. So he's been very bullish on this anti-white racism point, which is quite good to see the richest man in the world actually standing up for, you know, against this anti-white racism that we're all getting a bit sick of. And I wrote a little piece about that on my Substack. But I don't know, maybe he this was a bit reckless here replying to this guy. But then was it just an excuse for all these ad companies to drop out who already hate X? He's uh, Linda Yaccarino, who's uh, the CEO of X now, has said X's point of view has always been very clear that discrimination by everyone should stop across the board. I think that's something we should all agree on. When it comes to this platform, X has also been extremely clear about our efforts to combat anti-Semitism and discrimination. There's no place for anywhere in the world. It's ugly and wrong, full stop. And Musk made it clear that you can't call for genocide of anyone on his platform. What did you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I watched um, Ben Shapiro's defense of Musk in which he said that Musk must have thought that the original post referred to the um, political campaigning activities of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, which has targeted X in the past and accused Trump, uh, sorry, (laughs) Musk of not doing enough to uh, remove anti-Semitic content from a platform. Um, uh, And Ben Shapiro said, you know, it is certainly true that some liberal Jewish groups um, have, you know, participated in the promotion of anti-white woke ideology. Um, so, uh, uh, but but where Musk went wrong was in endorsing a tweet which accused all Jewish community groups of embracing this particular ideology, when clearly it is just a subsection. But he 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 gave Musk the benefit of the doubt. Said Musk clearly didn't read this tweet very carefully, um, and had he done so, he wouldn't have said you know, you're speaking the truth. And Musk subsequently clarified that that is indeed what happened. He misread the tweet and he didn't mean to besmirch all Jewish community groups as being anti-white, just a woke subsection. Um, I think we published a a really good piece, actually, um, by Yoram Hazoni on The Daily Skeptic a couple of days ago. He, He posted a response to this story on X and um, set out his reasons for not thinking Elon Musk was anti-Semitic. And Yoram Hazoni is uh, an Israeli political scientist um, and probably the leader of the national conservatism movement. Um, And his argument was that this pile-on, this boycott, um, is a good example of misdirection. It's the woke left saying, look over here, to distract from the fact that the vast percentage of the anti-Semitism, which has exploded um, since October 7th, um, uh, has been in the Muslim community and has been in the woke left community. Um, It hasn't been in the conservative community. And whilst it's true, he acknowledges that there are some conservatives, particularly on the alt-right, who are anti-Semitic, they pale, they are dwarfed by the huge number of anti-Semites amongst the woke left, something we've seen on university campuses in Britain and America, something we've seen particularly amongst the woke professoriate, various arts companies uh, signing open letters, artists, writers signing open letters, which completely airbrushed the October 7th massacres from history, and so on and so forth. I thought I thought a really good point. It's like the left are so embarrassed by all the anti-Semites kind of uh, that have emerged in their midst in the past six weeks, that they've leapt on this opportunity to accuse Elon Musk and X of being anti-Semitic, because it's a way of just distracting from the real story of the past six weeks, which has been the unbelievable, toxic um, uh, uh, content that's been produced by you know upstanding mom- members of the woke left, and the fact that they've got a real problem with this that they're just not confronting. Much easier to just say, "Look over there," and I thought that was a that was that that that, that was a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, the companies also are just covering their backsides, aren't they? But by, you know, a, a boycott is kind of standard. And I absolutely agree. Musk is not anti-Semitic and it all comes from the left at the moment. By the way, we did get a listener complaining that you you were you were saying anti-Semitic instead of Semitic. And uh, 
you know, you always get these listeners, uh, I don't know, complaining about pronunciations, just just flagging that. <laughs> I don't know, is that, have you noticed that? Anti-Semitic or, instead of anti-Semitic. I think you've been saying Semitic, like emetic, like being sick. But, you know, Semitic, isn't it? Anyway, just FYI, you know, if you want to, <laughs> if that's useful. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, we're going to agree on all that, obviously. And it, although his, his tweet was a bit reckless. I mean, he, he is a bit bold with his stances. I do like that he's stood up and said we need to crush this anti-white racism, which is, you know, it has got it has got ridiculous and everyone's everyone's become used to it. And there is a strange, there needs to be a sort of alliance really between, I don't know what how to describe it. Would you say white people and Jewish people, white Christians? I don't know how you would put it exactly. Uh, but because certain, certain Jewish people have been traditionally left and they've been, concerned about nationalism they might have good reason for that but now it seems you know we need to be on the same side but you've got the sort of you've got people like David Aronovich who seem to see it very differently they don't they don't want to be in any way tied with the kind of right the terrible right wing people who are actually the, the people defending them are the conservatives you know what I mean but they don't want any part of it and uh, have you noticed that there's, a, there's this kind of tension because Leo Kurs had a, a good uh, reply to Aronovich I need to find it but he was basically saying that Leo was echoing uh, a post that the Nazis were sharing. And then Leo just kind of totally trounced him in the reply and Aronovich got totally ratioed. But I can find that in a minute. But it is interesting. And it, was that m- what Musk was getting at in his, in his sort of tweet? That it's like, okay, we need to absolutely be against anti-Semitism, but we also need to be against this anti-white stuff that's been pushed by groups like the ADL. Was that the point? I don't know if... Um... It felt more like um, Musk was just triggered because he thought it was a tweet condemning the anti-white racism of the Anti-Defamation League, uh, and he's had a run-in with the ADL and and so just wanted to kind of attack them. Um, I think that, that was my read of it. I don't think there was anything... I don't think that he's sort of thinking more deeply about a potential alliance uh, between. I mean, I think that there's a there is a danger in um, having sort of ethno nationalist white groups um, like the EDL um, uh, stand up for Israel because it makes it easier for the woke left to then bracket Israel with white ethno nationalism and perpetuate the lie that um, somehow Israel is a settler, colonial, white supremacist entity, um, which is clearly wrong because the Jews were the original indigenous population in that part of the world, predating um, Muslims um, by several centuries. Um, And in addition, I think I'm right in saying that a majority of Israel's citizens are um, not of European ancestry. So there are more black and brown Jews in Israel than there are white Jews. And of course, there are lots of black and brown people who aren't Jewish in Israel too. Um, And that's what makes the claim that it is somehow a white colonial state so ridiculous. Um, And I guess I'd be slightly... I'm, I'm, I'm slightly nervous when people like Tommy Robinson kind of bang the drum for Israel because it just makes it easier um, for the woke to kind of bracket Israel with other expressions of white ethno-nationalism, which I don't think is helpful. Yeah, I can understand that. Leo 
posted this tweet. He said how it started, how it's going. And it was David Aronovich saying defending white interests can never be right. But then he, and there was now a thing saying whatever their views on Gaza, people need to understand that many in the Jewish community are frightened and feel attacked right now and so on. And uh, then Aronovich said this comedian, which he put in inverted commas, which is always the worst attack on a comedian. I mean, people used to do it to me. It's like, yeah, I was a professional comedian 11 years. It doesn't phase me at all. You're putting it in inverted commas. You know, I just, I, it's just a description of what my professional role was. It's not particularly, a, you know, it's not my whole, uh, where I got all my self-esteem from. And this comedian has just used against me an article of which I stand by every word, which has also been used against me today by a grab bag of actual Nazis, anti-Semitism, and upfront racist, I guess he means anti-Semites, and upfront racist, who have been circulating it between them. We see you, Leo. But then that got 303 likes, but Leo's reply has got 1,812, massive ratio, and says, David, please put your ego to one side. Apologize for your anti-white racism and take this opportunity to evaluate your worldview. The wokeism you champion is used to justify Hamas atrocities. They're decolonizing, apparently. The people you suck up to march in London's in London, chanting for the extermination of Jews, the people you smear as actual Nazis, did you see their uniforms, David, are by and large the people who would defend civilization. Or you can hold on to your ego and hope it floats on the sea of wokest hate. So, yeah, it's a sort of similar point from Leo. It's like, you know, and a similar point to the earlier thing you were saying from Iran, Iran Hazoni, which is uh, the, the hatred of Jewish people is coming from the woke left and not really the kind of, you know, the sort of phantom of the, of the far right, which barely exists. I think that's the that's the point. Yeah, but I guess, I guess it's um, if people like David Aronovich are waking up to the fact that um, their tolerance of some of the more extreme elements in the kind of radical, progressive, woke church is now coming home to roost because it makes it harder for them to condemn anti-Semitic statements being produced by Semitic statements being produced by the woke left. I mean, it's, it's, shouldn't we welcome, you know, this sinner into the kingdom of heaven if he's realized that he may have been a little bit complacent about some of the more extreme elements in what was his own church until recently. And he's now in the process of leaving that church, um, having, you know, having had a reality bath. Shouldn't we ease him into, you know, the world of the ranks of the sane, rather than simply pointing out that until quite recently, he was endorsing some of their more idiotic sentiments? Well, if he is doing that, it's I, the point I gleaned was he isn't doing that and he hasn't woken up to it. There are people okay. doing that, Absolutely. There are lots of Jewish people who are doing that, uh, but I don't think Aronovich is, for, certainly from that. And he's saying, you know, he stands by his former views. So I'm not sure that he has... Uh, I mean, he, he said at that recent debate, he didn't even want any faith schools, which would include Jewish faith schools. I thought that was a odd take. So I'm not really sure. I think he's clinging on to this sort of... Well, he's always been a kind of dream. militant militant secularist, hasn't he? Um, yeah. Slash atheist. Not quite a new atheist, but certainly new atheist adjacent um what is the argument that um it's hip it's it's inconsistent to have in the past condemned um ethno-nationalism as you know um being kind of fascistic and atavistic and nationalist um but at the same time to defend israel's right to exist is that is that the argument that you can't kind of it's like sort of condemning ethno-nationalism in principle, but saying you love the idea 
of the state of Wakanda in um, uh, you know in the Marvel universe. Um, is that the argument that 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 Israel is essentially an ethno nationalist state, and yeah, that- um, therefore? your previous condemnation of ethno-nationalism um, means you'll have to condemn Israel as well. And if you want to defend Israel, then you're going to have to revise your previous view. Is that, is that, is that sort of the argument? Yeah, I'm not sure if that's the argument with Aronovich and Leo, but that is one of the arguments I've certainly heard used. Yeah, you, you know, you, you say you hate that here or in the United States, but you say you, you love that for Israel and that is inconsistent. The other Another argument is is just more the the sort of alliance argument that you, you sort of you, there's this concern about nationalism and you want to brand every everyone far right and you're worried about conservatives and you but at the same time but, but it's clear that the, you know that all the hatred is actually coming from the far left that's that's the other argument uh so yeah i don't know i don't know which one is most pertinent in yeah. this case i mean I, I i i you know as as a defender of israel i would prefer to concentrate my fire not on defenders of Israel for not having you know not being completely in not being completely consistent you know over the last few years uh, I, would, I would I think you know um, a better point is to attack the kind of beyond pensant liberal left for um, advocating open borders in this country ridiculing white ethno-nationalists in Britain for wanting to prioritize the interests of Indigenous people. Um, uh, I would highlight the contrast between that and making a sort of argument on behalf of the Palestinians on the grounds that they are the indigenous population and the Jewish population are new arrivals and therefore should play second fiddle. And somehow the claims of the indigenous population trump those of the newly arrived migrants. I mean, they wouldn't make that argument you know about no. Britain, so well, that, 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 that made that point, didn't he? several people have made that point. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So if you're going to do that, well, then what, yeah, what's going to happen here? Yeah, that's another point, and it's all a bit uncomfortable to talk about, but it, it's it's on the it's on the table now because of wokeness. Basically, I make the point in this in my Substack piece that really white people, in especially in a country like England, didn't really, which was so massively majority white, didn't really think of the, their ethnic identity or at all. They, in the sort of, you know, when I was growing up and so on. And only because they were repeatedly told by the woke movement, by critical race theory, by decolonization, A, you are a category, which is white people, and B, you're, you are, you're inherently evil. So they were told those things. So, so they're, they're being forced to think of themselves as a category. And you go, what is the end game there? Because that was obviously going to lead at some point to what I start to see happening now, even from people as big as Musk, I start to see people going, oh, yeah, okay, maybe white people are a group, but we're actually all right. Look at the good things we've done. Or they say, at the very least, you can't be racist against us. And some say, no, we are a group and we're actually good. And some will go further than that. So it's obviously you've created a white identity. I mean, was it a master plan to create a sort of new white identity movement? Was it very unlikely? Was it a divide and conquer strategy from some sort of coming from down from somewhere? Who knows? Or was it just rank stupidity from the woke side? Because if you if you say that a group that doesn't really think of itself as a group say no, you definitely are a specific group with shared interests and you're evil. Well, you know the, the only response to that is sort of shame, which a lot of people have, have taken on. You know, white guilt, or amongst the more lower middle class and working class, more likely a, a tendency to go well f off then because we haven't actually had this white privilege we're yes. talking about. So the, the the end result of that yeah. was always going to be you know not what the woke wants surely yeah I mean this has I think long been 
a good argument um, against the demonization of white people by the woke left, which is if you continue to do it, you're going to stimulate the emergence of a white ethno-nationalist political movement. And is that really what you want? Wouldn't it be better if um, we didn't try and racialize our populations um, and engender this kind of racial division? Um, And that's certainly true of some European countries. So we can see the emergence of uh, white ethno-nationalist political movements in Finland, Denmark, Sweden, um, uh, Germany, um, uh, maybe Hungary. Um, But um, it hasn't really happened in the UK, has it? I mean, why do you think that is? What, why, why, why do we have better antibodies? Um, are we just less prone to capture by extremist ideologies? It doesn't seem true of extremist ideologies of the left. I mean, Corbyn, after all, polled almost, what, 40% in 2017, which was a shockingly large number. Um, but uh, uh, have we, how, how have we escaped this kind of... Uh, inevitable consequence of the demonization of white people in Britain, do you think? Or do you think we haven't and it's about to happen? Well, I think it may be starting to eventually happen if if things keep on how they are. But yeah, I would speculate a few reasons. One is, is this the history of of fascism and communism in Europe? Maybe this doesn't answer your question, but just sort of furthers the point. For some reason, they seem to have this tendency towards that, which we don't. We have this classical liberalism. We just have a different mentality, a a better mentality, and we're less susceptible to those movements we haven't had them whereas you know germany spain you know the, these european countries have had them italy so we seem to be more resistant to those kind of isms and maybe it's something to do with being an island and not being as threatened on our borders and maybe it's to do with we haven't had quite the same problems that france has had uh, recently with the you know tensions of multiculturalism. and we've had a lot of problems it's not quite the same level may you know so maybe we just haven't had the same issue with borders and immigration though we are now starting to have it so a couple of possible reasons there we're just better aren't we we're just cooler we're just we've got a better philosophy we're the inventors of of liberalism and i think that's a lot to do with it and also maybe proportional representation is another factor those kind of parties can get a foothold much more easily in their system what do you think to that yeah maybe uh either i think that's a factor yeah i think um the insofar as there are kind of green shoots of a white ethno-nationalist political movement, I think they've quite quickly been absorbed within the Conservative Party. And that's one of the benefits of having a two-party system, just as left-wing extremists are absorbed into the Labour Party and the two-party system has a moderating effect. Um, the Germans so yeah, think, are a bit weird. I think that's a factor. Is it, is it also <laughs> that um, white Britons, you know, um, with white British heritage um, are... Uh, less prone to um, grievances than their equivalents on the continent. Um, you know, you can imagine why, you know, um, white working class Germans um, would be nursing grievances, you know, um, having, you know, um, uh, Germany having been defeated in two world wars, um they might be suffering from a kind of inferiority complex, feel a bit more chippy and resentful, respond better to the a you know the 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 AFD. Um, whereas we've got less to be resentful and chippy about, having until quite recently 
had an empire, you know, stretching across two thirds of the world's surface. And also that could in turn give rise to a certain amount of white guilt, which makes us less prone to white ethno-nationalist movements. And I guess that the, the, and it's probably wrapped up with class as well, because the class system, I'm not saying, you know, there's no class system in France or Germany or Finland, but it seems to be, seems to be kind of um, not, not as powerful um, as our class system. And we kind of associate white ethno-nationalism with the kind of uneducated white working class with football, um, with kind of skinheads and violence and the NF, all of which is kind of um, from a class point of view, you know, uh, completely declassé and kind of, you know, untouchable, not at all respectable. And that might be less of a factor with these white ethno-nationalist movements in, you know, Scandinavia. Yeah, and the, and the and I'll add to that, but the obvious factor I've missed out because is that we we fought and defeated Hitler. So our association with any kind of that's true fascism yeah. or quasi-fascism is just it's just like oh we hate that that's our enemy, which is our enemy. It's not been the way we think. It's not what we're about, but it, it is what what Germany were, were about when they were attacking us and mm. dropping bombs on us. So you know, so I think it's it's our revulsion. That's our massive revulsion to Hitler and, and the Nazis. Uh, and which is why it's so disgusting when people get called Nazis for just having normal conservative mm. views in England. But on the other point, the working class element, yeah, it's, the, it's maybe the class element and also the punishment element, whereby just the slightest expression of nationalism mm. is punished. You know, it, you can't have an England flag. And we saw, we saw the demonstrations recently, the lads were like being questioned by the police, it's seemingly just for having an England flag. Mm. And certainly that's, that's the perception one has. For about a week during the football, you're allowed an England flag. So you're not even allowed healthy expressions of nationalism and innocent expressions of nationalism. Mm. They're all sort of stamped out. And you mentioned Tommy Robinson. He was treated so uh, brutally by the state, which even Douglas Murray has admitted, that, you know, whatever you think to him, he was repeatedly persecuted for what seemed to be fairly minor infractions, like the mortgage thing and so on. And there's just such a crackdown on it that I think no one would even think, no sensible person really goes there. You know, maybe you might say for, for an actual extremist, there'd be more, they may be even more likely to go there or, you know, they, they wouldn't care about such things, but, but even kind of a normal healthy expression of, I would say healthy expression of patriotism is kind of stamped out in this country. Whereas France, for example, are much more patriotic and that's just who they are. And they're just sort of allowed to be. So yeah, that's maybe another factor. Yep. Yeah. But then again, yeah, uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Who knows? I think that, that there's more intellectual support for white ethno-nationalism in places like France and Germany, you know, um, than there is here. And there was that, fa- that, that famous quote by George Orwell, which is that um, for a member of the intelligentsia, they would prefer to be caught stealing from the poor box than standing up for the national anthem. Yeah. Um and and that that kind of that that sort of um you know worldly um uh disdain for simple expressions of nationalism by the kind of intellectual elite has made it very difficult for a kind of intellectual white ethno-nationalist movement to take root in our universities, our newspapers, etc. Yeah, although that that comment itself and that general sneering attitude seemed to pertain solely to the nationalist element rather than even the racial element, didn't it? Although I see your point, then you're not going to get an extension of that. But even the just being any in any way proud of your nation 
is so yeah. hated and sneered upon by the professional managerial class and the intellectual yeah. class here. So, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a low status indicator, unlike in the US, though I think it increasingly is becoming a low status indicator in the US too. I think it is as well with that letter to bin Laden going around <laughs> and people say, oh, actually, maybe bin Laden's the good guy, not the United well, States. Well, that, actually, that, that, which, which um, reminds me, um, if people are worried about anti-Semitism on social media and big advertisers are boycotting X for that reason. Well, what about the, you know, enormous surge in anti-Semitism on TikTok? That hasn't been given anything like the same attention as the alleged proliferation of anti-Semitism on X. Um, and yet, as you say, there's there's the promotion of um, the Osama bin Laden letter, um, which is explicitly anti-Semitic when you get to about, you know, the sixth or seventh paragraph, uh, as well as kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, lots of promotion of the pro-Palestinian pro protests and pro-Palestinian sentiment in contrast to pro-Israeli sentiment on TikTok. I mean, is the Chinese Communist Party manipulating the algorithms to disseminate you know, these anti-Western points of view uh, to sow discord and division and to weaken our morale? Maybe, but um, I was on GB News to talk about this on Darren Grimes' show earlier this week. Um, I'm not so sure because if you look at actually the ratio of the hashtag stand with Israel to the hashtag uh, free Palestine on all the other big social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook, it's about the same as it is on TikTok. So TikTok doesn't seem to be any kind of outlier. It's more that, you know, the people who use social media platforms, predominantly young people, just seem to be very much biased towards Palestine and against Israel. And that's probably um, not a not a um, not being caused by social media bias or algorithmic manipulation. It's probably just a larger symptom of the extent to which that generation's been infected by the woke mind virus. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, it could always be China, but it could just be the woke mind virus, as you say. Um, by the way, I just wanted to wrap up that particular section by saying, and I sorry if I've misrepresented any of uh, David Aronovich's positions, because he would get, would get very annoyed about that and probably <laughs> attack me in some, some sort of forum. Um, I want to just move on to the media matters aspect of it. And, it's a bit complicated, but this guy, Joe Benarock, who is an ex, I suppose, I've been trying to find out what his role is, but I can't right now. But anyway, he said, Media Matters created three accounts and followed 30 accounts similar to the ones in the article, their article about X, I suppose. They then constantly refreshed the timeline of posts, 13 times the number of ads served to this user as opposed to the median. 50 impressions served against the content in the article out of 5.5 billion served the whole day. Point to the fact of how efficiently our model avoids content for advertisers data wins over allegations. So it's all a bit complicated. I haven't fully got my head around it either. Basically, the takeaway is that Media Matters kind of rigged their experience of, of X using various techniques to try and show that it, it promotes more adverts to you and it promotes various bad stuff that it actually wouldn't for just a typical user. So Musk is calling it fraud. And he, he posted this thing where he said fraud has both civil and criminal penalties because Attorney General Ken Paxton opened an investigation into Media Matters for potential fraudulent activity. So it's, it's, it's whether they manipulated data and then kind of misrepresented the experience of X seems to be the sort of heart of the lawsuit. I don't know, Toby, did, did you fully grasp this? No, I didn't fully grasp it. And I know that 
public, Michael Schellenberger's site seemed to uh, try and reproduce the findings of Media Matters and couldn't do it. And the implication is that Media Matters have essentially been faking this evidence that um, X is uh, too tolerant of far-right content, has been promoting far-right content to users and so on. Um, but I haven't followed the detail of it, but um, I know that uh, that Musk is now going to sue them. What happened to his lawsuit against, um, was it Stop Funding Digital Hate or what was the he sued some other campaign that had been encouraging advertisers to boycott X as well. I wondered how he'd been getting on with that. Yeah, I don't know. He's always seeing someone because they're, they're obviously against him. Obviously, everyone's doing what they can to shut down X because it's so powerful and it's in favor of free speech. Um, I'm just going to have a look at the original Musk post about this, where he said this week, Media Matters posted a story that completely misrepresented the real user experience on X in another attempt to undermine freedom of speech and mislead advertisers, which we know. But he he, he went to a few key points. He said, to manipulate the public and advertisers, Media Matters created an alternate account and curated the posts and advertising appeared on the account's timeline to misinform advertisers about the placement of their posts. These contrived experiences could be applied to any platform. So he's saying he could have done this on any social media, but they just did it with this one. Once they curated their feed, they repeatedly refreshed their timelines. This is the same as the other guy said, to find a rare instance of ads serving next to the content they chose to follow. Okay. Our logs indicate that they forced a scenario resulting in 13 times the number of ads served compared to the median ads served to an X user. So they just they refreshed and manipulated it somehow to just make it seem like you'd get constant spam and ads at you. Of the 5.5 billion ad impressions on X that day, less than 50 total ad impressions were served against all of the organic content featured in the Medium Matters article. Right. So yeah, they just they just rigged their experience of it in various unnatural ways. This is basically what we're saying. And so now he's going, he's threatening what, what the I calls a thermonuclear lawsuit. So he says, here's a summary on, on this. X will protect the public's right to free expression. We will not allow agenda-driven activists or even our own profits to deter our vision. Everyone has a choice on X. User and brand control on X is superior to a year ago. Data wins over allegations. Media matters does not reflect the user experience on X. Yeah, and it's not surprised to anyone. I mean, I mean, one interesting question raised on Timcast was who's funding Media Matters and do they have some sort of line to, you know, government back channels in the way that we we did see on X mm-hmm. prior to the Musk era with people like Vijaya Gaddy and, and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, there seemed to be the government would just say via various intermediaries, hey, can you stop this or emphasize this or de-emphasize that? And Musk has refused to do any of that. So it's interesting. I mean, and Musk does hint at that here. He says... Um, he talks about the lawsuit, and then he says in a follow-up tweet, "Their board, their donors, their network of dark money—all of them." So you, one wonders who the network of dark money is. Yes, and where's our um, network of dark money? Is that it's probably a reference to um, uh, George Soros. Soros? It usually is, and, isn't it? Uh, it's usually, <laughs> that's what dark money means. Um, Which is anti-Semitic in itself. You're not allowed <laughs> to criticize Soros. No, um, the the British government has stopped uh, advertising on X, um, which apparently predates this kind of Media Matters report or the most recent anti-Semitism scandal. Um, but perhaps Media Matters and other similar anti-disinfo organisations have been whispering in the ears of ministers and senior officials. Um, but I thought that was quite disappointing that... Um, the, the, the UK government it still advertises on Instagram and Facebook, but not on not on X so much anymore, apparently. Okay. Well, I think we've probably largely nailed that story. 
I would say. Or when I say nailed, I mean vaguely grasped the tech aspect, but, you know, <laughs> we grasped the political aspects. So maybe now is a good time to hear a little message from our friends at the Stack Assistant who say, the central bank is a scam by which politicians cheat good people with inflationary tax. Bitcoin returns money to its original creator, the private sector, and prevents politicians from robbing you through inflation. So said an Argentinian economics professor recently. He should know, as Argentina has defaulted on its debt five times in the last four decades, repeatedly destroying the life savings of anyone holding pesos. Somehow, despite all this, it is still a G20 nation. Argentina has a well-educated population, abundant farmland, minerals, and water resources, with harbors on both the Atlantic and the Pacific. It is even named after silver. Yet apart from the very rich with scarce or overseas assets, saving has been a disaster for everyone else thanks to rampant inflation presided over by a carousel of cat-handed central planners. Meanwhile, in pesos and ever more currencies worldwide, Bitcoin has already passed its all-time high and is rising. Argentinians have had enough, and on Sunday, that central bank-hating pro-Bitcoin prof was voted in as president by a landslide. If you've had enough too, then email thestackassistant at pm dot me that is the stack assistant at pm dot me and toby i put that in there because i wanted to move on to our next story about the man they're discussing which of course is javier millet who was just voted in in a shock landslide in the, the argentinian election he destroyed his rival even though he was thought to be an outsider and people have had enough of these socialist policies there argentina argentina has 140 percent inflation which is mental and he's come in and won. And I'm sure you've seen his hilarious videos. He's got these brilliant videos where he talks about all the departments he's going to get rid of in Argentina. And he pulls them off a whiteboard and just says, Afuera! It'll be like gender studies department. Afuera! Apparently that's being closed in 21 days. He's already acting on that. And it'll be department for public whatever. Afuera! And he throws it out. One of them, he tries to pull off the board and goes, Afuera! And it, it doesn't pull off. And he goes, even if you resist, and throws it off the second time, which is absolutely, the guy's absolutely hilarious and mental. But he's also, he's also a, a tantric sex expert. He's, uh, he's just a, an interesting guy. He's a libertarian. And of course, immediately the BBC called him far right, which is, uh, you know, some people said to me, well, he is technically far right because in the compass, he would be, he would be both, the, the down on the y-axis i was trying to argue he was far down you see because he's a libertarian so on the it's authoritarian at the top libertarian at the bottom so that's where he is on the compass but then economically as simon evans was saying it's also left right economically so he would be in the sort of southeast corner of the political compass so someone was arguing to me well he, he could technically be described as far right but i was saying yeah but that's not what the bbc meant when the bbc and guardian called him far right they're just using it as a smear and that yeah. tends to mean authoritarian right which is the opposite of what he is yeah, I mean he's yeah he's 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 an anarcho-capitalist, but uh, and a and a great um, uh, fan of Margaret Thatcher's. Um, but yeah, I was surprised by how quickly even the Telegraph um, described him as either far right or hard right. When I hadn't thought of you know being believing in free market economics was necessarily hard right, and I think he's you know he's certainly on the right-hand side of that spectrum when it comes to economic issues. But I'm not sure he is. He's, I don't think he's a social conservative. I mean, he is he's on a great some believer. issues. He's is very he uh, issues? anti-abortion because, you know, they're a big Catholic country. Yeah, but he's also pro-tentric sex, isn't he? Um, yes, and he says doesn't he's an seem expert. To be, doesn't seem to be too concerned about sex outside marriage. 
Um, uh, he's, he's not. He's, he's, man. He's, no, he's no Miriam Cates. I think that I think it's fair <laughs> to say. Um, he's. Uh, I would have thought hard harder to kind of place on the other axis in which you know delineating whether you're socially conservative or socially liberal. Um, I think of him as a sort of classical liberal, which is not not far right at all. I suppose you know it, it's it's because um, one of the ways in which the progressive left demonizes anyone who opposes um, uh, the big state. Um, one of the ways in which they do that is to describe them as far right or hard right when, you know, as recently as 25 years ago, that would have been probably, probably made you a bit of a centrist. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited. I mean, I think uh, uh, it'll be great to see um, how successful this anarcho-capitalist experiment is. And it's hard to imagine it will be any less successful than the kind of Peronist uh, economic policies that have been pursued to date, um, which has, you know, turned Argentina from one of the richest, most economically prosperous countries in the world to a complete basket case. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the the um, the track record of um, far of 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 you know um, populist uh, right wing political leaders like him in South American countries isn't great. So if you were going to have to, you know, if you were a betting man, you you, you would probably be sensible to predict that he's going to fail. Um, but nonetheless, um, I'm willing to give him a chance and excited to see how he gets on. You think they'll oust him like Bolsonaro? I mean, the regime aren't going to allow someone like this, are they? I mean, or you just think he'll fail... Just, just genuinely, just, just well, it may, it may be. It, it, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, um, it might be that that you know, like Liz Truss, he'll run afoul of the bond markets and have to either resign or um, switch tack and do a U-turn. Um, it is quite. Di- I mean, I think the it's quite difficult to pursue a radical cost-cutting economic policy. Um, if you're not, uh, you know, if, if you're not going to massively cut expenditure at the same time, and if you massively cut expenditure, then you immediately alienate kind of large swathes of the electorate. But he has said he's going to abolish all these departments. Um, you know, you, you referenced the video. It'd be interesting to see um, uh, how much of that he actually does. I imagine he'll sort of naturally rein himself in, um, but uh, hopefully not by too much. Well, he wants to go back on the dollar, doesn't he? And, he, and he's against a central bank. And um, on the economic side, End Wokeness just shared this saying how it started, how it's going. So the original was an article from The Guardian. Economists warn electing far-right Millet would spell devastation for Argentina. And then there's a recent screenshot. Argentine stocks saw bonds climb as investors cheer Millet whim. <laughs> so who knows? So maybe the bonds, I don't know, maybe they're behind him. It'd be interesting to see if anarcho-capitalism, as he calls it himself, can work, isn't it? It'd be a good experiment. Obviously, Dominic Frisbee's uh, chuffed. Mm. Be good to see if it actually works. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it, it, he's a great fan of Margaret Thatcher's, and I imagine that if he um, deregulates in the way that Margaret Thatcher did, um, uh, if he reduces the tax burden on companies, um, encourages inward investment. Um, somehow manages to seduce the bond markets, then you can see it being uh, initially at least quite successful in um, restoring the Argentinian economy to health. Um, 
uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, as Peter Thiel pointed out in his Rogers Group Memorial Lecture, it's only a trick that can be pulled off once. You've got kind of one bullet. Uh, if you can do it, fantastic. And it does stimulate growth, but only for a limited period of time. And then you have to come up with something else. Um, but uh, I'm not sure it's ever really been tried um, uh, in in Argentina yet. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if it has the same effect as Thatcher Economics did here. He's not very sound on the Falklands. Did you see that? He uh, he, yeah. he thinks that Argentina has a, an indisputable claim, a sovereign right to the Falkland Islands. Though he also said that um, any settlement will have to um, involve the current Falkland Islanders, which uh, which is sort of storing up trouble because, of course, they want to remain part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, and that made his uh, support for Thatcher somewhat ironic. He called her one of the greatest leaders in the history of humanity, but he also said, as you say, Argentina's sovereignty over the Falklands is non-negotiable. So, yeah, a bit of an issue there. That's where he does fall down in, in, a, in British eyes, of course, or sensible people in this country. Yeah, and like you say, it's never really been tried there. It's, it's like socialism, they always claim, has never really been tried. I always think libertarianism has never actually really been tried, possibly anywhere, but, you know, fully. But certainly, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Um, I think there's a claim that it's never actually been tried. I mean, Thatcher was sort of libertarian, wasn't she? But it's not like, it wasn't like full no. anarcho-capitalism. It was just a little touch of freedmen here and there, as yeah, far as I could yeah. gather. Um, it's not my specialist subject. All right, that's uh, Millet. I mean, I'm not sure we have... Do we have anything else on Millet? Not necessarily. Maybe we should um, move on and do some of these stories relating to the old Israel-Palestine stuff and related issues. So one of them was that the Labour front bench started resigning, uh, Jess Phillips, of course, and a, a few others, and it was to do with the ceasefire vote. It was quite shocking, really, that uh, they. this was the moment when they felt they had to leave because... Starmer refused to call for what they call a ceasefire, and the obvious allegation was that really they're just they're just in sway to their constituents who are you know if they're in high Muslim areas it's really just a you know it's a purely capitulating to that. Uh, what did you make of it? Yeah, it was. Um, it, it, I think it's symptomatic of um, Keir Starmer's failure to really stamp his authority on the party. Um, everyone imagines that he's kind of um, purged the toxic anti-Semitic Corbynistas uh, from the party. Um, and it's now a party much more like it was under Tony Blair. Um, but actually, the rebellion, even amongst his front benchers, um, uh, over this issue suggests that um, the purge is very far from complete, uh, which in turn, I guess, means we should worry about um, what a Labour government will look like and what he'll need to do in government to pander to those elements within his own parliamentary party. But I guess one striking thing about it is it's like a kind of dispute that would cause, um, you know, real division and uproar um, at a student's union. You know, who really gives um, a stuff about whether the British Parliament calls for a ceasefire or not. I mean, um, it's not going to have any impact at all on what Netanyahu decides to do. Um, uh, you know, it, it's purely a gesture, a virtue signalling gesture. And these MPs are falling out because, you know, not all of them 
um, are prepared to virtue signal in this completely pointless way. But it's exactly the kind of you know it, it feels like student politics. Um, you know that they're that they're that they're getting all worked up about positioning and you know symbolism, um, and not something which is going to have any practical impact on the real world at all. Yeah, and you'd like to believe it's a humanitarian cause, but really one feels it's an ideological cause. You've got people like Naz Shah, who, who was suspended in the past, by the way, for saying that for a post saying that Israel should be relocated to the United States, had a three-month suspension, somehow still in the party. Mm. I mean, it's really they hate Israel, isn't it? I mean, and some of it is that their constituents hate Israel. So that's what I think. Yeah, and it's, it's I mean, people... I. I I, I, I always slightly kind of taken aback by how much support there is um, amongst people, you know, I hadn't thought of as being particularly far out there or particularly captured by wokery for a ceasefire. I mean, um, what does it mean to call for a ceasefire in the Middle East? Well, it, it's asking the Israelis to lay down their arms um, before Hamas has been defeated and before the hostages have been recovered, because Hamas certainly aren't going to respect a ceasefire. Hamas, yeah, the leader of Hamas has said that um, if we can attack Israel again, we will. And it is our intention to carry out more atrocities like the one we carried out on October 7th. We're going to keep doing that until you defeat us. Um, so what does it mean to call for a ceasefire? It effectively means to allow Hamas to get off scot-free for what it did on October 7th, not worry about the 240 plus hostages they've taken and are keeping in tunnels beneath hospitals and schools and whatnot. And, um, and, and you know, um, effectively encourage Hamas to do it again. I mean, it's just ridiculous yeah. um, how anyone could think that's a sort of morally defensible position is just beyond me. I know and many would say, well, there was a ceasefire until Hamas did that, as, as many yeah. have pointed out. And yeah, but as you say, it's the rifts within the Labour Party and it shows where they really are as a party, as does this story in the independent Labour MP blasts Keir Starmer's Sunak attack ads for being Islamophobic. And so Zara Sultana was on Navara Media and she claimed, you know, the advert that was just, you know, Rishi, Rishi doesn't care about, um, what is it, uh, child doesn't think child sex abusers should go to prison. It was a very crass advert. It was an awful advert, but she was claiming it was Islamophobic. It's had a picture of Rishi Sunak, obviously is, isn't a Muslim. It doesn't make any sense, really. And she said that um, people knew exactly what kind of racist tropes they're playing on, which I thought was a bizarre take. And uh, so she's against Starmer and saying that his ads are Islamophobic. Never mind that he's um, just launched Islamophobia Awareness Month and he's bending over backwards to try and keep his Muslim vote. She's saying the opposite. She's saying that Labour whips have told MPs it didn't matter if they lost 7,000 Muslim votes because they'd still win their seat. So this is the sort of, again, we're talking about identity politics and kind of divisions that Trump party. You've got Zara Sultana, you know, calling her own leader Islamophobic, essentially, while praising it's sort of, in a sense, the Tory leader. Quite bizarre. Did you see that one? Yeah, I did see that. And uh, uh, the, 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 you also saw these various conservative MPs on the other side of this divide who presumably didn't vote for a ceasefire, um, uh, raising the alarm about um, protests in the constituencies of Labour MPs targeting those MPs' constituency offices. Uh, and it's like, uh, you know, they've been seeing what's been happening in our major cities every Saturday for the past six weeks, um, in which, um, you know, um, uh, 
Muslim protesters and their woke allies have been calling for genocide, not just in the Middle East, but across the world. Um, uh, and, you know, they, 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 they've been completely okay with that. Um, you know, anti-Jewish genocide, fine. Yeah, I haven't got a problem with that. But the moment these same crowds target the constituency offices of Labour MP, suddenly it's like, maybe we should be worried about these mobs inciting violence. Uh, this could end badly. You know, uh, all on the telly now, kind of uh, raising the alarm about uh, just how sinister and dangerous, you know, these these mobs are. It's like, well, how did you miss that for the past six weeks and only now are becoming aware of it? Yeah, that was shocking. Rachel Reeves on the telly going, oh, it's, it's appalling that Su- Suella Bradman called these hate marches. But, you know, MPs are being intimidated. It's like, what, by all the hate from the marches? It's like, <laughs> how could, it's so absurd. Oh, Suella Bradman's rhetoric. But she was completely right and we're under attack. It's madness. I mean, yeah, but now finally they're under attack. It's, it's worth talking about. Yeah. And what did you I, say? I, I, was, I, I wanted to, um, I mean, wanted to mention um, uh, Jeremy Bowen's performance on the BBC. I mean, the BBC really isn't emerging from this particular conflict um, covered in glory. Um, even what the former director of television at the BBC, Danny Cohen, is calling now for an independent inquiry, though last time there was an inquiry into anti-Semitism in the BBC, uh, which admittedly wasn't an independent inquiry, it was an internal inquiry. Um, they they didn't publish the findings, they, they still haven't published them, and all attempts to FOI them have been unsuccessful. Um, so if there is another inquiry, it can't be conducted by the BBC. Uh, but um, one exhibit in the mounting pile of exhibits for the prosecution against the BBC was Jeremy Bowen's um, uh, uh, comments about the um, arms discovered at the um, Al Shifa hospital. So um, the IDF's um, uh, capture of the Al Shifa hospital has been singled out by um, defenders of the Palestinians um, and enemies of Israel, um, as an example of, um, you know, just how over the top and disproportionate and morally inexcusable um, the IDF's actions in Gaza are. They've attacked this hospital um, where patients were being cared for, including premature babies, you know, what unspeakable villains they are. And the Israeli response has been, well, actually, you know, this hospital, like Lots of other hospitals, as well as other civil facilities in Gaza, is being used as a staging post, as an arms depot, as a military um, uh, uh, gathering point for Hamas. Um, uh, and there was a lot of scepticism about that to begin with, um, from all the usual suspects, Owen Jones, etc. But also Jeremy Bowen, a BBC correspondent, who who said. Um, uh, the evidence up to now on the pile of Kalashnikovs there, I'm afraid, is not convincing. He said, wherever you go in the Middle East, you see an awful lot of Kalashnikovs. Like that was his reason for dismissing the huge pile of automatic rifles discovered by the IDF at the Al Shifa hospital. And he went on to say, it's not inconceivable that the pile of Kalashnikovs belonged to the hospital security department. <laughs> so is <laughs> I mean that's given rise to a kind of uh, a lot of memes um including a very funny post by the Babylon Bee about how to tell if your hospital is being used by Hamas as a military depot or whether it's actually a hospital um but um uh yeah it's not inconceivable is that now 
the official BBC benchmark that if Hamas make a claim and it's not inconceivable, then they're going to report it as fact. Um, I mean, if only right. they if only they were as permissive when it came to the IDF's claims. Um, it just seems such a straightforward example of BBC bias. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and I think the BBC has now acknowledged that uh, there really can be no doubt that the Al-Shifa hospital is being used for military purposes by Hamas. They released all those videos um, and stills of the hostages being taken to the hospital. Um, they weren't being taken. Owen Jones defended it. So this isn't evidence that Hamas are using the hospital for military purposes um, or that there are tunnels under the hospital. He said they just want to look after the hostages because they're bargaining chips in their ongoing conflict with Israel. It's like they didn't need it. the hostages in the pictures aren't ill. They're not being wheeled into the hospital on gurneys. They're being dragged into the hospital. They're completely able bodied. Some of them are children like, yeah. Hamas aren't taken into the hospital because they're worried about their health, you absolute idiot. Um, they're taking them to hospital because that's where they, they're holding them captive because the hospital is being used for military purposes by a terrorist organisation. I mean, it's like, anyway, the BBC have acknowledged now that that's just completely indisputable. But the people kind of disputing it, like Jeremy Bowen and Owen Jones, are now looking very foolish indeed. I wonder if the BBC now think it's conceivable that Hamas are a terror organisation or if <laughs> that's still so. inconceivable. And on the Babylon Bebo, it's slightly unrelated, but on our previous story, they posted uh, 1 billion Argentinians already dead after Libertarian elected. <laughs> that's one of my favourites. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the BBC, did you also see the octopus on University Challenge? They're in trouble because of the woman sat... You remember the anti-Semitic octopus from Greta Thunberg? And that picture. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah. back. The octopus has popped up again. In a, right. in a, it's someone is sat there wearing what seemed to be the Palestinian colours with the octopus in front of her. And BBC press officer said, "We are aware of a number of inaccurate claims being made online in relation to last night's episode of University Challenge, and we utterly condemn the abuse that has been posted and shared. For the avoidance of doubt, this episode was filmed in March. The mascot is one of many chosen by the team during the course of the series, and is one of their favourite animals." The jacket worn by one of the contestants was navy blue, orange, pink, and green, bought from a high street retailer. It has no connection to any flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those, those yeah those Hamas supporters smuggled it onto University Challenge. I'm afraid it was uh, they pulled a fast one. I just want to read out some of the ten clues. The hospital you're at is actually a Hamas base that the Babylon Bee published yesterday. Number one, the doctors break out in cheers when someone dies. <laughs> Not a good start. The ambulance has a 50 cal machine gun mounted on top. It does clear traffic, but in a very Hamasy way. <laughs> the hospital offers to waive your bill if you strap on this cool vest. <laughs> to be fair, we're told they do keep their word. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's quite good. funny. Be smashing it as ever. All right. Um, and on, actually, on a similar topic, just quickly then, maybe this... Um, Teacher's story, teachers self-censoring lessons for fear of offending Muslim pupils. And you commented on this on GB News and we did it on Headliners last night. More than half of teachers, 55%, said they would not use any images of the Prophet Muhammad in classrooms, even during the teaching of Islamic art or ethics. The figure rose to nearly two-thirds, 64%, among art teachers. And also one up to one in five teachers are self-censoring their lessons for fear of offending Muslim pupils. This came from YouGov, commissioned by policy exchange think tank. Nadim Zahawi also said that the uh, the fact that the Batley Grammar School teacher was still in hiding was a national disgrace. And 
and it actually even went further. On your GB News clip, Toby, you said, oh, yeah, I don't think he's been back to the school. But he is so much worse than that. He's in a secret location outside the Yorkshire area, and he's been given a new identity. I mean, you pointed out he wasn't supported by his head teacher who suspended him, which was appalling. But this is what happened. No one teachers are scared. It's like, well, you'll get a new identity. It's like, yeah, but my life will be over. And I'm essentially living in witness protection in the Yorkshire Moors. I mean, it's absolutely obscene. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's not at all surprising that uh, so many teachers um, are now terrified of showing pictures of Mohammed in their classrooms um, because of what happened to this particular teacher in Batley. Not only was he not supported by his head teacher, as you say, he was suspended and placed under investigation. Um, but in addition, he wasn't supported by any of the teaching unions or really by any members of the government either. Um, so, yeah, he was completely hung out to dry um, just for showing some of the Charlie Hebdo cartoons of Mohammed um, in a you know, religious studies class, uh, which is a perfectly appropriate environment in which to show children those cartoons. Um, yeah, it's appalling. Um, uh, and the um, point I made on GB News was that uh, I think increasingly now, um, partly because, partly out of fear, but partly out of a kind of notion of just, just you know, a perfectly British desire not to needlessly offend people, um, in schools and other institutions, but particularly schools, um, there is this kind of uh, uh, respect now for Islamic blasphemy codes, you know, um, uh, and you know, even the police are encouraging this by recording NCHIs against people who haven't committed a crime, but who have breached some unwritten Islamic blasphemy code, such as mistreating the Quran. Um, and, uh, you know, it's all very well to expect schools, universities, the police, you know, all these civic institutions to not do anything to upset Muslim communities by breaching Islamic blasphemy codes such as mistreating the Quran or showing pictures of Muhammad to school children and the rest of it. But if that's the way we're going to go, if that's the future of British society in which no one says anything to upset belligerent minority groups, um, it, wouldn't it be reasonable to expect those minorities to um, not trample over our sacred values either? I mean, <laughs> more than reasonable. Um, and it's quite, you know, it's 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 quite shocking to discover, you know, that in the same week that a majority of teachers now say, for fair reasons or foul, they're not going to disrespect the Muslim community by showing pictures of Muhammad because they know how deeply offended some Muslims, most Muslims will be by that. In the same week, in the very same week, you had pro-Palestinian Muslim protesters clambering all over the Royal Artillery Memorial, um, you know, which is a desecration of something that is sacred to most Britons. Um, so it can't be a one-way street. If they're going to, if we're going to change our behavior and respect the, the sacred and most precious things to our Muslim communities, then the very least we can expect is that they extend the same courtesy to us. Yes. And uh, and and why do our values like free expression yeah, get trampled by other values of, of one particular religion? And I always think Christianity, by the way, does have a special place in the country for obvious reasons to do with our history. I mean, our king is the supreme governor of the Church of England. 
So I would, I think you can make a case for Christianity having a unique place, but certainly no other religion should have a unique place to, to, to bring about what people are calling de facto blasphemy laws. But that obviously is what's happening based on pure mm. fear. So yeah, but how do well, we fix way, this in it, schools? It, it, one way to kind of characterize this is, you know, Britain for um, centuries now has been characterized by religious tolerance. Um, and that's now true of continental Europe too. And that's one of the reasons Muslim populations um, migrate to um, European countries and particularly Britain, because they know that their religion will be tolerated. They'll be able to practice it in our country. Um, they won't be persecuted for failing to convert as Christians would be, might be in Muslim majority countries, have been in Muslim majority countries. Now, um, but it's as though having kind of um, come here because they know will tolerate their religious practices. It's now not enough that they should be tolerated. They now must be respected too. So it's not enough that we should, you know, um, not mind Muslims practicing their religion in our midst. No, we now have to, everyone else who isn't a Muslim has to observe their blasphemy codes. We have to respect what they respect. It's not enough to tolerate them. We now also have to respect them. And you can see this same kind of um, escalating demands made on behalf of other minority communities. I mean, the LGBTQ plus community being the obvious example. They don't merely want to be tolerated. They demand respect. And if you don't give respect, they want to excommunicate you, ideally put you in prison. Yeah, we have a tyranny of minorities in this country, as, as many have observed. But yeah, what do you do about it in schools? I mean, what's the FSU proposing? The FSU is proposing that the Department for Education should include amongst the British values that schools in England and Wales are expected to promote free speech. Um, when we've lobbied for that in the past, the DfE have come back and said, well, we do ask schools amongst the British values they promote to promote the idea of tolerance and respect for people with different religions and beliefs. And we think that covers it. We don't need to add free speech because that that is effectively uh, free speech is implied by that. But actually, to give the lie to that argument, the head teacher of Batley Grammar School justified suspending the teacher who was targeted by this Islamic outrage mob um, uh, on the grounds that he'd breached this British value. He disrespected Muslims by showing children in his class this Charlie Hebdo cartoon of Muhammad. And that was a breach of the, the obligation on schools to promote tolerance and respect for different religions and beliefs, including the Muslim religion. So far from that including free speech, it in this case, actually excluded it and was used as a rationale for punishing this teacher for exercising his free speech. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on and do a very another very serious story. Nigel Farage in the Celebrity Jungle. I tried to watch it last night, Toby. I've never really watched it. I watched a tiny bit last year because it was Hancock and we were talking about it and my friend Sean was in there. But really, I've never watched it before that. I find it incredibly hard to watch. I watched some of the second episode and it was almost unbearable because I'm like, it's just, it's just so disgusting. It's like an hour and a half long. 
And they're just eating bugs. And I know this is well known, but I can barely watch that. It makes me feel physically sick. I'm like, why do people watch this? It's awful. Just eating. It's absolutely horrific. And the only thing that I'm thinking is a positive is that they at least make bugs seem disgusting and eating them seem really repellent, <laughs> which is kind of the antidote to the WEF. You will eat the bugs and be happy. So first, my first thought was maybe this show has been just in there for years to get us used to the idea of eating bugs. And I'm like, no, but how can that be? Because it's, 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 it's promoted as absolutely disgusting, which it is. So maybe it's the anti-WEF. Maybe it'll get banned eventually because it's anti-eating mm. bugs. But I thought at least it's it's a good case for not eating bugs. But the other thing was this guy, Fred, I don't know how to say his surname. It's a French name that looks like a mixture of Siri and X. It's like the ultimate tech name. It's like Siri X. I don't know how you say it. But he's a French guy who I've never heard of. He's from some dining show. And um, was he? No, he's from. Was he hosting first dates or something? He's some. I think, he's, I think he hosts. He hosts a dating show as well as a kind of travelling food show with okay. Bruno and Gordon Ramsay. Of course, he'll say I'm a nobody because he's got far more <laughs> followers. How many has he got? Two hundred forty-seven thousand. So he must be someone. Um, anyway, he's on there, so he's, he must be a celebrity, right? And he was arguing with Nigel Farage about Brexit, not particularly well. It was just the usual kind of French stuff you'd expect, and. Um, and he, he, my favorite part was when he went on this. I just think it's important to speak the truth. You've got to stand up for the truth, speak the truth, blah, blah. Then he went, but he, but he, meaning Nigel, was just hiding behind facts. <laughs> I know. That was good. That was good. I picked up on that too. Yeah. He's hiding behind facts. Yeah. He's not, he's not, he's, he's not being emotional enough about this issue. <laughs> hiding behind his blooming facts about Brexit. I just want to shout at him with impunity from my Remainer perch as some sort of French dining dork. Yeah. yeah. He comes at or, me with these facts. He's not respecting my feelings about the issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As if you can beat Nigel Farage, you, you better know your stuff to actually beat. You just shout at him a bit about red tape at the border and then you say, know, oh, like, you yeah, and your to, facts. Yeah, I know. It's like, yeah. And it's like to, to, to take on Nigel Farage on Brexit. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like me trying to take on the world karate champion saying come on come and have a go if you think you're hard enough it's like yeah. it's just and and you could see nigel could have barely got out of second gear he just kind of like yeah yeah sort of swatted him away like a kind of pesky fly um he but could I, be I, in, yeah, in a tent with yeah. i mean we've already seen farage naked was a bit weird a bit gratuitous but farage yeah like in an outdoor shower naked not even looking at the guy could beat him in a brexit debate while eating bugs do you know what I mean? <laughs> Did, I wondered how you felt about the fact that um, in episode one and in episode two, Ant and Deck um, make a joke about supposedly how few viewers GB News has. So they talk about in the first episode, I think they talked about Nigel Farage as a an ex-politician now presents his own show on GB News. So they just like to take this opportunity to apologize to his viewers because he, he, he'll he be um, absent for the next few weeks. And then they, they turn to the camera and go, sorry, Keith. Sorry, Miles. Linda. Uh, Linda, that's it. Keith and Linda. Yeah. Um, the joke being that those are the only two viewers that GB News has. Did, did you? Did, and they, they repeated the gag. And no doubt they're going to repeat it again, but they repeated it in episode two. Um, but I, I would have thought that um, it's actually, there are better gags to be made about GB News than about how few viewers it has, particularly as it's now regularly beating Sky News and the BBC News Channel. I mean, did they not, did, are, they, are they a bit out of date, do you think? Well, I generally hate that attack on GB News, and it's usually pretty pathetic. It's usually a lot along the, you know, someone who's GB News are living rent free in their head all day, and at the same time they're critiquing it because no one cares about it and it's imploding and no one watches it. It's like, well, you certainly seem to be thinking about it a lot, given that it's so unimportant. So yeah, I usually think that's a pretty weak critique. But I have to say, when Ant and Deck do it, I do find it quite funny. I mean, 
They just are very good. I'm sure they're not writing their own jokes, but they are actually quite good. I watch it and actually think they're actually pretty funny. And of course, I have met them on Britain's Got Talent. Maybe I've got a soft spot for them. But even when they're attacking GB News, they do it with such cheekiness, Toby, and likability that we've known, <laughs> that we've come to know so see, well that they pull it off to me. I know I, you I hate find, them. I know, to what, the point no, where no, you jeopardise your own chance of going no, no. on the show. We I know that. I don't. I don't hate them. I just thought that that's a bit too, bit too. Bit, bit they're too used much. a bit overused. too often. Bit overused. <laughs> um, the shows are far too long. I mean, yesterday's show should have been sixty minutes, not ninety. Um, but um, uh, the cheeky chappy routine isn't that getting a bit tired? Aren't they a bit old? To oh, do that 60, now, particularly they're 60 years well, they're, old, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're sixty plus now. I mean, and and they still wear the kind of cheeky chappy outfits. It's a bit like seeing, you know, a kind of wizened child's entertainer almost. They remind me of the Oompa Loompas, you know, in um, in the Wizard of Oz. You know, that you can see these kind of when, uh, Charlie, when you look when you. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Is it Charlie numbers. and the Chocolate Factory? Is it? Is it maybe, yeah, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, you see, you know, they seem sort of initially at first blush, these kind of charming little elves, you know, but but on closer inspection turned out to be kind of have these kind of wizened evil faces and uh, are not quite so <laughs> lovable <laughs> after all and not people you'd want to leave your children alone with. Um, but uh, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but I find, I find is it, is it, um, it's um ant is the kind of um less less kind of likable one right the one who does the kind of smake fake smile all the time yeah he wears those kind of that chairman mao jacket that's his kind of look it's been his look for god knows 25 50 years however long they've been around um but i i just find that kind of it's like it sort of works on a younger man but it just looks now a little bit inappropriate it looks a little bit too communist i don't know do you mean ant or do you mean that ant's the one with dark hair with the high forehead dexter sort of light head the slightly taller one who kind of whose smile is more obviously fake is that anthony okay i like deck i don't like ant i see well ant's had his problems but you know I find them a comfort. I find it comforting to me that they. I mean, I see what you're saying. They're aging child stars. I find it comforting that they still exist. They're still there, being cheeky somewhere. I'm incredibly like normie on this point. It's my problem. The only thing I'm normie on is actually I kind of I don't mind that. And deck. I mean, obviously, I've never watched the show. I've watched it like twice, so maybe that's why I don't mind them. And maybe it's because I've met them and got on with them. It could be that you know they were nice to me on Britain's Got Talent. Before you have to go on stage, it's quite a stressful moment. And they yeah. laughed at my jokes. And that's really my, my bar for if someone's all right, is if they laugh at my jokes and are nice to me. <laughs> okay. It's that simple. And so few are in this business. Um, yeah, but the show is awful. And for, I mean, Farage is doing his best. He is coming across very well. There's been all these people saying, oh, he's normalizing. Simon Evans wrote a great piece about it in Spikes. Mm. Like, there's people like the Guardian, oh, they're normalizing Farage. Like, no, he's normal. He's in line yeah. with the majority of the country. Brexit <laughs> yeah. won. And yet your views are, 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 are bizarre know, extremism so yeah, that you're trying like, to form. Yeah. I know, yeah. Normalising far-right views and xenophobia. Um, no doubt they would have been cheering when Fred Siri X um, attacked him for his uh, uh, xenophobic posters uh, uh, during the Brexit campaign. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just, no, it, was, uh, it was real. I mean, it was, it was a real... It was a genuine thing. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it, one girl sat and listened to it and decided to understand it. Which was Everyone else just went off and did the washing because they were scared about getting in a debate yeah, about it. They, the yeah, like, yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they didn't like argument. That sort of upset them a bit. They thought it was... Uh, yeah, he's the only one I've heard of apart from Farage because I was watching Hollyoaks when it first came out when I was at school. And he's that guy. They've got that... Is it Nick Pickard? And he was in it when it first started. So he's the only other one I know. Obviously, I know Britney Spears' sister just by knowing who Britney Spears is. I've never seen her sister, but I can work out who it is because that's her sister. But that's pretty low. But my point here I'm getting to is the Daily Mirror ran an article, Farage, the Farage effect is destroying the viewing figures because it's like 2 million down on last Mm. year. But 
Last year, they had Matt Hancock in there and everyone wanted to see him be humiliated. So that was a massive factor. I would suggest it's the Hancock factor. And also, they had Boy George, they had Sean Walsh. They, it was, they also, in the article, they admitted it's only thousands, only thousands of people have boycotted it. So I don't see how that accounts for the two million, for the two million drop. But anyway, no, I, 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 I did watch the um, bit in which um, they have to eat the bugs. And um, I did feel a bit sorry for Nigel. He didn't really, he didn't, <laughs> he, he looked like he was suffering and not suffering in a kind of performative theatrical way. Like Neela, was it? The, the, the woman opposite him who kept, whenever, whenever the kind of, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the ranger kind of unveiled what, what she'd had to eat. She kind of, she, she dutifully screamed and looked horrified and then made a huge song and dance and then eat, ate it. Whereas he would just kind of calmly got on with it. Um, but he looked, he looked as though he was finding it humiliating. Um, and, uh, and he sort of couldn't help thinking that maybe what's running through his head is, you know, I'm, I'm one of the most important political figures of my generation. I've had a arguably bigger impact on British politics than 99% of elected politicians. Um, uh, and um, here I am being forced to undergo this kind of humiliating ritual in order to redeem myself because I've been so effectively demonized by the broadsheet press and the liberal intelligentsia. If I was him, I think I would have... Uh, seriously considered refusing and he he did at one point when they when they got four stars she'd eaten two horrible things and he'd eaten two and they got four and there were 10 going begging and uh, he said shall we stop here and you could tell he wanted to stop but because she didn't want to stop he felt kind of morally obliged i mean i guess the social pressure to kind of eat these disgusting bugs and penises and nipples and god knows what else must be enormous um uh because you know you know the camp's going to be disappointed if you don't come back with 10 stars they're all going to starve they're going to blame you you'll look like a bit of a wimp and you'll look like you're putting your own needs above those of the group so the social pressure must be huge so maybe it's very difficult to refuse in those circumstances particularly if you're doing it with somebody else who wants to carry on but my god i would have been very tempted to just point blank refuse if i'd been him there is an argument i mean he, he went in there to get a younger audience there is an argument that you say because he's not at the end of his career he he's a future prime minister future leader of the conservative party i claim you know was it the right thing because hancock went in after his career was over you go in afterwards so there is a danger. Will it? Some some people are commenting and saying we really like him and actually don't like his politics, but he seems a good guy and all this. So he, people will realize he's not this evil character that everyone said. He's one of the nicest people at GB, uh, which everyone will tell you. But um, do you think you think he's gone in too early and made himself a sort of comic figure rather than a serious politician? I mean, I think it might. I think it might make it more difficult for him rather than easier to make any kind of political comeback because, you know, all that footage of him eating those revolting things as a hostage to fortune and there'll be more in the days and weeks to come. Um, but I did notice that at the end of yesterday's episode, he didn't get picked to do the next challenge. So it feels like, you know, the public are going to pick on Neela. Uh, as the one to do all the challenges in the first week and not him. So he's already now been effectively embraced, accepted. He no longer has to kind of undergo any more self-flagellation okay. in order to win over the public. Yeah, well, I think it could just make people think he's a good sport and like him more. So it, it may pay off in that way. And uh, I couldn't. my other point, by the way, was just, yeah, was just one, that Hancock wasn't in it, and two, the celebrities weren't as good except for Farage. That's why no one's watching. Or still, not as many as people as actually. But I forgot half my point because... 
I'm exhausted. I just want to flag that to listen. I'm moving house. And I've basically just been, I'm still working all my usual hours and I'm spending all my free time putting things into either a box or a bin bag. And, and, and it's just driving me mad. And the decision-making fatigue is so extreme. I'm just looking at my items for my, the last six years I've accrued and going, do I need this stapler? It's just like, <laughs> it's just endless. So uh, just want to flag that to listeners. Sorry if I forget the points. I'm just completely exhausted. Um, all right, that's Farage dealt with, I think. And maybe this is a good time to just do another quick ad, Toby, before we go to Will. Yeah, let's do that. Are you on the lookout for children's Christmas gifts? Then the new picture book, Gilly Wakes Up, is exactly what you need. Gilly, a giant redwood tree, is waking up after his winter sleep and getting reacquainted with his surroundings. It doesn't take long for him to find that his friend Willow has been broken in a winter storm. He, Ember the squirrel and her kits do what they can to help before finding out Willow is alive and well and can look after herself. The story has been written by Joe Robson. Joe has worked as a tree surgeon and has a passion for trees. Gilly Wakes Up showcases this passion and is packed full of facts which are further explained in the Did You Know section at the end of the book. Gilly Wakes Up is the perfect gift for four to eight-year-olds interested in the outdoors. There's no hidden agenda or messaging, just a great story written with love and care, beautiful illustrations, and lots of facts about trees. You can get your copy on Amazon, Waterstones Online, or email Joe directly for a signed copy on gillywakesup at gmail.com. And that's spelled G-H-I-L-L-I-E-W-A-K-E-S-U-P at gmail.com. Gilly wakes up. Joe has done book readings at outdoor events and libraries where he's read the story and then led Tree Detectives workshops. If you'd like a digital copy of the Tree Detectives activity sheet with your signed copy, just ask. So go to Amazon, Waterstones, or email Joe directly for your copy on gillywakesup at gmail.com. Happy Christmas from Joe, Gilly, Ember, and Willow, and stay skeptical. All right, well, now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week from The Daily Skeptic. Okay, I'm here with Will Jones with some of the top stories of the week. Will, um, we had a couple of stories about um, EULAs in the past week. Um, do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, so this is the uh, the scandals that keep on just just keep on coming from Sadiq Khan's extremely unpopular EULAs. Uh, scheme. This is the ultra low emissions zone, of course, for anyone who's been sleeping under a rock that's been imposed or rather expanded to Greater London uh, by Sadiq Khan uh, in the last year uh, to huge public outcry and lots of, uh, of vandalism to try to get rid of it. And this is a report that the claims that the, uh, the, the mayor made about the scheme, the benefits uh, that it supposedly had for air quality, uh, which is purportedly what it's all about, uh, they did a big, massive uh, £9 million advertising campaign, marketing blitz to try and persuade everyone that this was uh, this was a really worthwhile, important thing to do. And the advertising watchdog, uh, the Advertising Standards Authority, has uh, has written uh, a report. Uh, we reported on a draft report that had been leaked uh, that slams the, the so-called evidence that this, uh, this advertising blitz was based on saying that Sadiq Khan, it concludes, misled the public about the benefits of ULEZ in radio and, and newspaper advertisements. Uh, and it says that they were that he made uh, misleading claims about the effect that it would have on reducing levels of nitrogen dioxide uh, particles in the air. 
Uh, so this is a should should be a huge embarrassment to the mayor. Uh, but I don't know about you, Toby. But the, these these kinds of stories just seem to appear, and uh, and then and then they just seem to disappear. I mean, this happened. This was all a few days ago. And uh, and uh, have you been hearing much about it? I mean, is is it putting pressure on the, the, the mayor? It kind of feels like these embarrassments, when they're kind of on narrative initi- initiatives, uh, just barely seem to dent uh, the uh, public perception, or at least the. Uh, the, the, the elite perception, the media, the media yeah. perception and the pressure. Well, what do you think? Well, the, the media has clearly, or the mainstream media, has clearly bought into the uh, climate alarmist narrative and anything that runs contrary to that or seems to undermine some of its uh, figureheads um, gets quite little airplay. But that's not to say, as you say, that it hasn't made an impact with the public. And I hope that this will be the issue in the forthcoming mayoral election in London. And it will do for Sadiq Khan, um, which I think it will if uh, Jeremy Corbyn enters the race as an independent. And I think Jeremy Corbyn's raised profile since um, the conflict broke out in the Middle East uh, means he's more likely, not less likely, to run as an independent candidate. So I think Howard Cox, or if Howard Cox withdraws on behalf of Nigel Farage, Nigel Farage uh, will have a reasonable chance, um, uh, and and this will be the issue on which they'll fight the campaign and could defeat Sadiq Khan. On. Oh, we've got to hope so, haven't you? Because it's just it's incredible that someone can impose such a such an unpopular and and really not evidence based uh, system, even on their own terms, uh, evidence based policy, and expect to not not suffer electorally. So let's just hope that we do see that. Yeah, and I guess the um, probably probably the main beneficiary if um, Corbyn enters the race will not be the Reform Party candidate, whoever that is, but um, the Conservative Party candidate, who I imagine will have a, a really decent chance if uh, Corbyn does enter the race. Uh, but there was another Euler story, wasn't there, Will, about um, uh, the enormous amount of money um, NHS trusts in London have had to spend to make their ambulances Euler's compliant. Yeah, incredible amount. This is the story uh, that the NHS is spending nearly £65 million pounds, uh, just to ensure that ambulances in the in the capital are compliant uh, with the ULES scheme. So they, they were given a, a, a period, a grace period uh, of a couple of years to, um, to get the vehicles uh, compliant. About a quarter of the vehicles, of the frontline vehicles, are not compliant, which is 255 vehicles that need replacing. Uh, and at one hundred and forty thousand pounds a pop, that comes out at that figure, that incredible figure, sixty-five million pounds, and that's just the cost to uh, one public service, the health service, to get uh, one one kind of vehicle uh, to comply with this uh, ludicrous, uh, this ludicrous, unnecessary, uh, ineffective um, scheme. It is extraordinary. I mean, you would have thought that um, Sadiq Khan could have just made emergency vehicles exempt from paying the ULES charge. But no, um, instead, they're going to have to pay $65 million replacing those ambulances which aren't compliant. I mean, it is absolutely breathtaking. When you hear the NHS pleading poverty and saying that it can't afford to get the waiting list down to provide the health service um, in this country at the at the levels that we would we would expect for the UK, um, and to claim they're not they're underfunded, and then you hear they're they're spending money on these kinds of unnecessary compliance compliance with unnecessary laws, uh, you just you just think, well, no wonder no wonder with the uh, National Health Service is, is is short of money if this is the things it's spending uh, sixty five million pounds on, and this is just in London alone, of course. 
Yeah, quite extraordinary. Um, so um, let's cross the cross the Atlantic for our next story, Will. Um, this is about the US Army facing labor shortages and is now begging those unvaccinated soldiers who were uh, who left uh, rather than um, undergo mandatory vaccination, uh, begging them to to re- re-enlist. Yeah, yeah, this is a a bit of a bit of comeuppance for the U.S. U.S. Army. Entirely predictable, uh, you might say. Young men not particularly wanting to have the the COVID vaccination uh, imposed on them. Uh, quite a, quite a number uh, left uh, the army uh, it, rather than receiving the shot. But as um, the the writer of this article for us, Igor uh, Chudov, who has, has a an excellent Substack uh, page. This is uh, this was uh, taken from. This was first published on. Um, this story, and and as he points out, it's not just about the number who who leave, uh, but actually about the, those who don't sign up because of this restriction that's been put on it. Uh, they haven't got vaccinated. Uh, they don't intend to get vaccinated, and so as they never sign up, and that, and the result, of course. Is is a recruitment crisis. There was already a recruitment crisis to some extent in the in the U.S. Army, but uh, greatly exacerbated by this uh, this policy. And so, um, uh, and, and so we see the statistics on this are quite incredible. That uh, it, the the Marine Corps by themselves kicked out nearly two thousand people, uh, young men and women, from their ranks, and more than seventeen thousand service members uh, balked at taking the shots. Uh, it was reported citing safety fears. So that was so that was the situation, and uh, so uh, eventually, the arms, armed forces, with their tail between their legs, have written to former service members. Uh, one of the letters is reproduced in the article, so you can read it for yourself, uh, inviting them to a return to service and saying that any dishonourable discharge or anything, any consequences they receive, they will receive a correction of their military records. Uh, so that they will no longer be regarded as having been sanctioned or having any negative uh, consequences. Uh, so really, uh, really begging them to come back uh, because they're, they're short, they're seriously short. They're missing their recruitment goals by 25 cent, uh, Igor reports. So, you know, really, really uh, needing to, um, to, to up mm-hmm. those uh, up those rates. I'm, I'm sure that uh, COVID vaccination isn't the only reason that they're struggling to recruit people to the armed forces. But of course, it's uh, it's really, really not helping. Similar that we've seen with the care care homes in this country, uh, recruitment crisis, labour force crisis, and care homes. There was already, and yet they still imposed a vaccine mandate, uh, greatly exacerbating uh, that uh, that problem, uh, sending yeah. perfectly good workers uh, packing, uh, and of course, putting off people from uh, from coming into the coming into the workforce. Yeah. I, I wonder how many of the soldiers who left the U.S. Army, rather than get vaccinated will actually return now because I imagine uh, a good deal of trust was eroded by the US Army's insistence that they get vaccinated and they may not trust the US Army not to do something like that again should there be another pandemic if they do re-enlist. Anyway, um, back to um, Blighty. Um, There were a couple of um, heat pump stories in the press this week, which we uh, reproduced. Um, One was about the extraordinary noise pollution caused by uh, fitting out a primary school with um, with heat pumps. A secondary school. A secondary school. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, Will? Yeah, so heat pumps have been in the news this week because 
of their noise. So quite apart from their uh, effectiveness or lack of it, and the fact that they struggle to get buildings, especially older buildings, uh, up to um, the temperatures that we would expect, or hot water up to the temperatures we would expect, you know, kill to kill deadly bacteria. But uh, so quite apart from those issues, uh, there is the noise issue has been the has been the the story of the week, brought into focus in particular by this secondary school in Norfolk, Reapham High School. Uh, where residents who live near it have said the electrical devices are uh, causing a 24-hour nuisance. And the school is in particular hot water uh, because these units were installed without planning permission. They assumed they wouldn't need them, but in fact they don't comply with the noise level requirements. And so the council um, is basically not giving them planning permission and has said it is working uh, with all parties to get to a position um, that has enabled matters to move forward and has proposed an alternative source of renewable energy to the school. Uh, I don't know who's going to be paying for that, uh, though, because these pumps are, of course, uh, not cheap. Uh, but yeah, the noise are really uh, becoming a major issue. Yeah, again, it's the similar point that you made earlier in connection with the NHS. Schools like the NHS are constantly complaining that uh, they're inadequately funded and asking the government, the taxpayer, for more money. And yet they spunk their money on things like heat pumps, which they're now going to have to uh, change because of all the complaints, the horrendous noise they're making. Um, uh, But there's another, there was a broader story about this, wasn't there? So it isn't just the residents surrounding this school that are complaining about noise pollution from heat pumps, is it? No, that's right. Yeah. So the Mail uh, took this story a step further. They said, uh, the the Mail reported that uh, there's a report uh, coming out saying that has looked at the the noise levels and uh, whether it's compliant with uh, uh, with, the requirements for grants and with the requirements for planning permission and found that most air source heat pumps are too loud uh, for properties in built-up areas as the constant hum of the outdoor units violates noise limits for those who wish to install one without planning permission and uh, with a government grant. Uh, so a huge problem, majority causing this, this hum of 40 to 60 uh, decibels uh, similar to a dishwasher, and the requirement is that you have to have uh, that the heat pump has to not has to produce less than 40, 40 decibels at a distance of um, of a meter. And most units they found aren't doing that um, uh, unless you're four meters away, uh, which is which is quite a lot, um, which is quite a big difference, of course. So the, yeah, it's good. It, rather pity the um, government trying to sell homeowners on this defective product i mean they're trying to say you know spend an enormous amount of money uh, removing your perfectly functional gas boiler and replace it with a heat pump which barely works at the best of times doesn't work when the temperature falls below a certain level and in any event you can't switch it on i mean it's uh, it's not exactly a, <laughs> a winning sales pitch but uh, yes um not altogether surprising uh anyway that's great thank you very much will with our top stories of the week great thanks toby so that was will and toby now back with me and toby and i think i'll just quickly squeeze in another ad from our friends the wild goose chef who say it may seem like we're living through a rather bleak era, but do not be dispirited. Gather family and friends to celebrate the milestones of life. Birthdays, christenings, anniversaries, even funerals. Any excuse is a good excuse to have a party. The Wild Goose Chef specializes in intimate dinners and larger parties for up to 100 guests, 
If you're having a party, you need the Michelin-trained Wild Goose Chef to do the cooking. He'll cheerfully take the stress out of all aspects of planning your event so you can relax and enjoy the night. London, Berkshire, Wiltshire, and the Cotswolds, this guy puts himself about. If you're hosting a party, it makes good sense to get a well-trained, experienced, and reliable chef to do all the hard work. So call the Wild Goose Chef on 0779-658-164 or email him joe at wildgoosechef.com. The Wild Goose Chef is also a proud member of the Free Speech Union and is happy to offer a 10% discount to other Free Speech Union members. So once again, it's 0779-658-164 or joe at wildgoosechef.com. So thank you once again to Wild Goose Chef. And now it's time for everyone's favorite section, which is, of course, Peak Woke. All right, so got a few Peak Wokes for you this week, Toby. They're quite good. I think my favorite one came from favorite in the sense that it was awful, came from this, uh, well, this is a story from the Mail on Sunday. Critically acclaimed transgender horror author hails Osama bin Laden's principal destruction of Twin Towers months after sharing her desire to slit J.K. Rowling's throat. She sounds nice, or he, she, whatever it is, it's a trans. Gretchen Felker Martin said this shocking thing about bin Laden and then apologized later after saying it was the most principled and defensible thing he did, meaning the World, the World Trade Center attack. But everyone noticed how incredibly disingenuous this was because this same person had previous and had said, the huge crime of 9-11 is that the shit we do every day overseas gets done to us exactly once. So a sort of Bin Laden fan, that's about it. But a trans horror writer, I mean, that is about as peak woke as it gets. This is the new revisionism, ignorance, cultural relativism that we're seeing in the idiot sphere of TikTok and wokeness. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, like I said last week, the number of peak wokes just seems to be growing exponentially, which suggests that we need to rename this section as something like ongoing, unstoppable, unassailable woke that has not yet reached a peak. Um, but um, uh, maybe that's a bit too pessimistic, but uh, maybe we were unduly optimistic. Uh, but uh, I've got, I mean, I'll just rattle through some of the ones I've got. So Staffordshire police have issued an inclusive language guide. Um, so you can no longer say man up and grow a pair uh, because that is gendered language. And God knows well, a huge number of other things. A maternity hospital um, was um, downgraded um, by the NHS um, because it used the term mother in some of its uh, promotional literature. And just to remind you, it was a maternity hospital, but of course, mother's uh, a trans-exclusionary term these days. Um, a sexual assault centre at a Canadian university um, signed an open letter that disputed that women were raped and sexually assaulted during Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel uh, on October 7th. So just just let that let that land a sexual assault center at a canadian university is disputing that women were raped and sexually assaulted during the hamas attack and i guess that plays into a larger story about just how little um uh, fuss has been made by so-called feminist groups um about the rape and sexual assault of israeli women um by hamas on october 7th um murdo fraser um, I guess former leader of the Conservative group in the Scottish Parliament um, is in um, hot water for comparing non-binary people to cat identifiers. And um, the Times, 
the Scottish Times, I should say, in reporting this story, described the claim that um, that uh, some people in some schools, some school children, are identifying as cats um, as a conspiracy theory. Um, he said his post, in which he in which he referred to. Um, uh, he said, choosing to identify as non-binary is as valid as choosing to identify as a cat, uh, which I think is a fair point. Um, but uh, the Times then said, and this, is, this isn't quoted, this is the reporter's voice. The post appeared to reference a viral conspiracy theory that some children have identified as cats. Um, it, that's not a viral conspiracy theory. That's true. Um, in fact, the, the idea that there are some children, the, the claim that there are some, ch- sorry, the claim that it's a conspiracy theory that some children in schools are self-identifying as cats is itself a conspiracy theory. And it was a conspiracy theory put about by um, Byline Times, which is a well-known left-wing conspiracy website. Um, so the Times effectively is regurgitating a conspiracy theory by calling the claim that there are children in schools who identify as cats a conspiracy theory. Um, yeah. I, I, I've got loads more. <laughs> well, yeah, Hang Josh, how he spent on, half the, the week arguing with Otto English about that. Okay, yeah, I'll just go quickly because I've just got a good one here, which is the, um, the uh, well, it was a medical one first, since you, you made a reference to a medical sort of one, which is fury at cervical cancer campaign that replaces the word woman or women with people and sexualizes smear tests by telling patients not to keep their legs crossed. So there's this kind of crass, don't keep them crossed campaign but what people are missing is this is an attempt to get obviously men who are trans to go for smear tests. So of course it's going to have like laddish kind of campaigning. It's going to be aimed at them, right? That's that was my little theory anyway. Uh, so that was one, and this one's better. Roman emperor was trans, says museum. The North Hertfordshire Museum has said it will be sensitive to the purported, purported pronoun preferences of the third century AD ruler Elagabalus. Elagabalus. I don't know how you pronounce it because I I didn't have a good education, but um. What it, it turns out, they're saying, oh, yes, clearly this emperor identified as trans and, you know, said it said he was female and blah, blah, and used the she pronoun. But this came from an account from Cassius Dio, who served the emperor Severus Alexander, who took the throne following the assassination of Elagabalus. And so these accounts were to justify the assassination and basically insult in the worst possible way this allegedly trans person saying that basically they're a bit effeminate which was a massive insult of course in roman times so the whole thing is they're clinging on to this insult and saying it just that he was a beautiful trans woman it's completely absurd yeah um as a classicist pointed out in one of the whatsapp groups i'm in if only latin had grammaticalized gender and we could use the sources to find out what his pronouns were oh wait never mind (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, incredible. Incredible. Um, I've got um, another historical one. I've got, I'll, I'll, I'll confine myself to two more. But there was a story in the BBC today that I think the Museum of London um, claims to have carried out research um, uh, which proves that women of colour were much more likely to die during the Black Death in London in the 14th century um, than anyone else. Um, and this apparently um, points to underlying um, structural racism in pre-modern Britain. And you're thinking, well, hang on a second. How big is your sample? Because how many women of colour were living in London 
in the 14th century. And don't forget that during the Black Plague, something like 50% of London's population was killed. I mean, so, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but how many of them are women of colour? I mean, how many women of colour were living in London in the 14th century? Enough to, 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 to you know, um, uh, confidently claim that they were more likely. I mean, do you, do you even, I mean, do you even know what the total population of women of colour was to work out, you know, what percentage of the total population? Was it more than 50%? I mean, maybe there were kind of like four women of colour living in London in the 14th century and three of them died. And that's enough for the Museum of London to make this claim that they were disproportionately at greater risk of dying from the Black Plague. I mean, it is just incredible um, that, that the efforts to prove that Britain is and always has been um, uh, systemically racist, uh, even though early Britons were, of course, black, as we know from um, uh, what's that? Uh, uh, the Children's Hist- History Horrible Histories. Called, horrible Histories, yeah. Okay, the last one I'm gonna, I, I, I've got, Will, is um, the uh, transgender. A, so, sorry, <laughs> I kept calling, kept calling Will Nick as well. Um, the last one I've got is the transgender woman footballer um, who. Um, so she she's uh, she's she, she, sorry he he's called Francesca Needham and he's thirty and many of the players in the opposing teams apparently are as young as sixteen and um, he's already broken the knee of a woman in one of the opposing teams and now the opposing teams quite understandably are refusing to play the team he was in he's now resigned from this team because it was effectively preventing them from getting any games. Uh, but he's now, inst- instead of, you know, throwing up his hand and saying, okay, maybe a 30-year-old man shouldn't be playing a contact sport with 16-year-old girls, uh, particularly after he's broken one of their knees, instead of throwing up his arms and admitting that that's probably a bad idea and quite dangerous, he's now suing the opposing teams who refuse to play his team for discrimination. Yeah, and one of the the injuries was from just a shot, wasn't it? It was a, such a powerful shot; it like smashed I think that's one of right. their knees because yeah. it was a yeah. man and their yeah. women. <laughs> yeah. I got in a bit of tro- not trouble, but I posted another one of my controversial female football tweets. Did you see that um, that bit of footage from it? Was it a Fulham game? And a cross came in, and the striker basically miscontrolled it into the net, and just and it just rolled past the keeper in classic women's football fashion. Did you see that yeah. one going around? And, so, and, uh, and, and someone had described it as unstoppable, hadn't they? Yeah, some kind yeah, of, yeah. Some yeah, cucked male pundit warning. No, to well, someone had done it as a joke. So, someone this oh, guy. Oh, so, put... was a joke, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was Fulham. Uh, it was, it, and it, it was against uh, AFC Wimbledon. It was so bad. Someone wrote, "You just don't save those," which got like forty-one point <laughs> nine thousand likes. It was an obvious joke. And I just said, for every day we have to pretend women's football is good, our nation grows slightly weaker. I mean. That's right, isn't it? Because we just have to accept the fiction. We have to, we're forced to accept the lie. I mean, does this make me the world's biggest misogynist? Amy had a go at me, Amy Nicole Turner, whatever she's called. Now, I love Amy, but she said to me, um, she, she had a problem with me. But then I just said, oh, yeah, she said, bloody lady footballers going around winning everything, can't stand it. And I just said, at least I acknowledge women exist. Boom. Well, that's how you win any <laughs> argument with Amy. But um, love Amy, but she's very nice. But she, her views are bonkers and women's football is crap. Yeah, I think it, um, <laughs> it, it it is one of these noble lies that every respectable person is now expected to tell at regular intervals. And there is something 
you know, there is something dehumanizing and demoralizing about having to do that. You're right. I think it was, isn't it? Solzhenitsyn said that was the worst aspect of, um, of living in Soviet Russia. It was having, it was having to, I think it was, it was having to praise um, approved writers who you knew were terrible. Um, but having to lie to kind of curry favor with the regime was, you know, was just so demoralizing. It was the worst thing about living in a totalitarian society. That's what they did to Jean-Luc Picard, isn't it? With the four lights and they're trying to make him say there are the wrong number of lights to sort of break him. And uh, obviously some people would refer to 1984, but my references come from Jean-Luc Picard in his Star Trek. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. They, they say women's football is good and we have to, we have to eventually believe it, Toby. That's the point. We co- First we say it's a lie, but the goal is to get us to actually goal, mm. no pun intended, to get us to actually believe that it's good. But mm. I never will. I'll die on this hill. <laughs> Any others? I think that's it. I think that's it. Okay. That's it. And as and you've also got to go, which I know the listeners love it when I say that. Toby, just go, guys. <laughs> well, I think I've got time for review of the reviews. So this is a big one. Anti everything, but spell auntie like aunt. Did you get it? Has said refollowed. So the original was this one that said gutted having to say goodbye after this week's show as Toby less so Nick reveal we are fundamentally so different regarding ugly Islamism, the left's appeasement of it, and its ruinous consequences on Britain. Toby quite happy, it seems, with it all, and it sort of attacked Toby saying this person was Team James, but you know can't listen to the Toby's stuff on that anymore. But we then addressed it last week. So they put update. I listened to the next episode to see if Nick was going to address listeners' concerns over Toby's viewpoint, and he did. He actually read my review out, and Toby responded with a right to reply. I'm well impressed. Going over reviews is such a cool personal touch. Thank you. Still think Toby is too weak and blindsided on the Islam issue, but was pleased to hear Nick saying he thought so too. Toby redeemed himself in part, though, with his stance on Israel. I concede I was too hasty to walk away. Nick's clever ploy of addressing disgruntled listeners has worked. Have re-followed. P.S. want to give credit for whoever wrote the title, Tories need braver men. Very clever. Bet it was Nick. Well, it was, but uh, <laughs> Toby also came up with Woke Jihad, which is performing very well, and some other good titles. So we, 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 whoever comes up with the best one, we go with. What do you think of that, Toby? We re-followed because we actually addressed Refollowed? It. Well, I guess um, I guess it's nice that he didn't uh, decide to abandon us altogether because he disagreed with me about a particular point. I think I like to think that our listeners are quite a broad church. They don't agree with everything we say, and we don't expect them to agree with everything we say. But let's hope we say it in an entertaining enough way to keep them following. I actually do need to be agreed with, but Toby doesn't. But I mean, the fact that they're called, they might not be he, by the way, Toby. If they're called anti-everything, could be a woman. So they don't say, we don't want to misgender them because mm. then they'll put they put us down to one star again. But, if it um, is a woman, I think she has a crush on you. I bet that was Nick. Yeah. Loads <laughs> of chicks do uh, do like me and they, they comment and stuff, but then you meet them and they're, they're lesbians. But um, <laughs> or, or footballers. So, yeah. yeah, that has actually happened. So someone here says, highlight of my week. Love you guys. Five stars. That's a great review. Great podcast. A great podcast. You have a technical issue on Apple. No, we don't really. I think that's on your side, but thank you. Um, Excellent. I think I have this one before. Another one saying excellent podcast. Five stars. They're all unanimously positive this week. So we thank you for that. That's what we want. Blind praise. And speaking of that, you can also go to my podcast, The Current Thing, which also has a lot of great reviews five-star reviews and we just had an episode out with dr callum miller who makes the case for the pro-life side very very well and we're going in depth on that it's a very serious intellectual discussion with a tiny bit of bants in there as well so go to the current thing 
If you want to support me in any way, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. You can buy me a digital coffee and I and leave a comment. I reply to all the comments, buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon or nickdixon.substack.com where I managed to put out three pieces recently. So I'm back on there, nickdixon.substack.com, buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. And Toby, anything you want to plug? Yes. Um, I, I Well, I want to encourage uh, listeners to join me on the National Solidarity March Against Anti-Semitism, um, which is going to be this Sunday in central London, beginning at uh, 1.30. And if you go to um, antisemitism.org slash march and uh, register for updates, you will be told the route. They haven't released it yet for obvious reasons, um, but they will do shortly. And I'm certainly going to be there. I'm going to be marching with a British Friends of Israel October Declaration flag so it should be fairly easy to spot um but i hope to see some of our listeners there and the other thing we should mention nick is um we are now officially it's official we're definitely going to do it we're going to do the weekly skeptic live at lola's the downstairs bar of the hippodrome on december 11th and it's going to be um uh, i think it's uh doors open at 6 30 live podcast seven to nine and it's £25 if you want to come to listen to us uh, doing the podcast. But if you want to have dinner with us afterwards, two-course meal, glass of Prosecco in a nice restaurant, you can have a steak or you can have lobster and um, hang out with us and uh, also make a donation to our new podcasting platform. If you want to do that as well as come to the event and get a ticket to the event, it's £125. And we're going to be advertising that on Eventbrite, uh, hopefully from tomorrow. I'll be putting something up about it on the Daily Skeptic and promoting it on Twitter, at Toadmeister, as I imagine Nick will be on his Twitter as well. So if you enjoy listening to this podcast, if you missed out on the opportunity to see us recording it live back in May, um, I seriously recommend coming to Lola's at the Hippodrome on the 11th of December. Doors open at 6.30. Um, it's, a great, it's a great location, lovely stage, good sound, and there are only 160 tickets on sale. So if you want to come, you probably be, should be um, pretty sharpish about purchasing tickets, and they will go on sale, I think, on Eventbrite from tomorrow. Um, but if you love us and you want to help us launch our new media our new podcasting and events platform then come to the dinner come and chat to us at the dinner hang out with us till 11 o'clock and later at the hippodrome um for a little bit more um but well worth it yeah and the meal actually looks good i was looking at the meal thinking i want i definitely want that it was like steak wasn't it it just looked like the kind of thing i could eat wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it steak Yes, yeah, steak is one of the options. options. Yeah, definitely. And w- will we will we be blessed with the presence of Jordan Peterson? Do you think at this event, Nick? Maybe I can ask him. He's very busy these days with <laughs> Ark and everything. But I can definitely ask him. Okay. Um, or you can right. ask him. We, we both know him intimately. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely come along December eleventh. We've only ever done one before. You never know how many of these we'll do. So definitely get to that. And um, I've got to move house, of course. But I'll also be ready to smash that gig December eleventh. Yeah, the live shows are a lot of fun, aren't they? People love the last one, so no, yeah. no reason not to come. And you and you you did you introduced it with a bit of stand up, which yeah. went down very well. Um, and then we had quite a long Q and A with Jordan Peterson, which was fantastic. Um, no, it was a great night last time, so I hope it will be again. Yeah, Q and A. I'll do stand up, which I never do anywhere else. And you'll get Peterson maybe, and you'll get a dinner if you want to go for the more expensive ticket. 
or just get the normal ticket and get it quick, as Toby says, because they'll sell out, we believe, because the last one did and we had a much higher capacity. So, yeah, December yep. 11th. All right. Great stuff. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? So until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.